If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. There should be a Bible under a chair or in a pew back in front of you. If you don't have one, if you don't own a Bible, please take that. We believe that this is God's Word. And we want you to have God's Word. And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is about three quarters of the way through the Bible. It is after Romans, First uh, and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And we're going to be in that first chapter from verses 1 to 14 this morning. So in 2015, we purchased a house and moved into this new house that fall. And as we did, if you ever visited us in the first few days, you would have seen our house and walked up and seen the steps and how cattywampus those steps actually were. In fact, if you actually got to the top step and then tried to climb onto our porch, you would have literally had to climb on to our porch. And so very quickly, we called a contractor to come out, and by his estimation, our front steps had sunk deep into the soil at least 10 inches. And so very quickly, he got his crew there and pulled out those steps and as they were preparing the ground to pour brand new concrete for the steps, he had to do a couple of things. They had to bring in dirt, bring in rock, lay down rebar, and lay down wire mesh, all an attempt to keep the eroding ground from continuing to erode away. Because he wanted to make sure that the foundation that he was about to pour those steps upon was secure was stable and would last. How's the foundation for your life? All of us are building our lives upon something. We have an idea of what life should look like and we begin to pursue those things. But they're all building upon some sort of foundation. The question is, is that foundation sure? Is it steady? Is it secure? Because if it's not, the very foundation of your life will erode away. And this morning... I want to plead with you to build your life and build the foundation of your life upon the work of God in salvation through Jesus Christ. And to start that and to understand that reality, we are going to look at an idea called election. This is an idea that is highly debated, but it simply is this idea that Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines as an act of God before creation in which he chooses some to be saved. Notice, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Pleasure. 
that he decides not because of anything he sees in any person, but he decides in his own intelligence and wisdom to open our eyes and help us to see that Jesus is more beautiful than this world. And then he woos us to faith in him. And this morning, I want to just show you that truth from Scripture and show you how that truth gives us a sure foundation. And then in the coming weeks, we will build upon that foundation so that we can actually understand what saving faith is. And so the point that's going to guide us this morning is this simple truth. God's election gives us a sure foundation for our salvation. The fact that God has done something before he even created the world should actually give us such a sure and steady foundation and give us much security in the midst of a turbulent world. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. As we do, would you as we read God's word this morning? We're in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan For the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were first to hope in Christ. Might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So this summer... I know that you are in and out because of vacation, and so we are going to do something different where we typically walk through books of the Bible. We are going to actually zoom out and just look at something I've desired to study uh, with you for a while, and that is 
what actually is salvation. Because I'm sure some of us are wondering, am I actually saved? Do I actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Some of us are walking around thinking, (laughs) of course I do. And both of us need a reorientation to what the Bible actually says real saving faith looks like. And so we're going to start at the beginning. In fact, Paul shows us before the foundation of the world at what God has done. And then we're going to logically work through what it means for us to have saving faith over the next about two months as we walk through this reality. And this morning we have to start with this idea of election. As I defined earlier, election is an act of God before the foundation of the world in which he, in his own pleasure, decides that some would hear, know, and come to faith in Jesus. And the reality is, uh, some of us don't really like that. We like what is called free will. We, we believe that we have freedom, and we should, as creatures, have freedom to do whatever we want. Although I would argue many of us recognize that we are not as free as what we want. My guess is if I told you to run along the sidewalk, flap your arms really, really fast, and try to jump and fly, you would say, you're ridiculous. I cannot fly. But what if you will it? What if you desire it? You still can't because we're limited creatures. I love how the German uh, reformer from the 1500s, Martin Luther, how he described our freedom. I've used this before, but imagine this room. Imagine you were born in this room. Imagine you slept in this room. You awoke in this room. You ate in this room. You played in this room. Every single day of your life is in this room. All of the windows are black and you know nothing else other than this room. And I told you, you have freedom, all that you want, in this room. To you, it would feel like freedom and free will. But to the one who knows that there is a world outside they would see just how limited you actually are. And Luther says that's the way it is for us before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we are limited to the realm of sin, and so all we can do and all that we can think is through the lens of sin, and we're tainted by that sin. And it's not until Jesus Christ comes, opens our eyes to who he is, that The world is opened and we begin to see that there are so many more joys that we have missed out in this world. You see, freedom doesn't come because you have some sort of free will. Freedom comes because you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that happens because of what Paul shows us here where God intervenes and he gives us this salvation. 
And I want us to focus on this because I think that this will actually encourage you that your hope is not in you and what you can do, but your hope is in Christ and fully in him. And to show you this, I want us to focus on three truths this morning. Okay, so let's look at these three truths. The first is the grace of election. This is an utter grace from God. It is a free gift. None of us deserve faith in Jesus Christ. It is something that he gives to us, and he gives to us in abundance. Look at how Paul describes this grace to us. Look at verse 3. The the author, Paul, writes, and he just simply starts, blessed. He's saying, praise, blessed. Blessed who? Blessed God and Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts with God. For you to have life forever, life beyond this life, for you to have forgiveness of sin, for you to have a restored life, it does not start with you. It starts with God. And that is a glorious truth. Because I know my life. And I'm sure you know your life. Your best attempts are still not 100% perfect. And so we must start first and foremost with God. And so Paul just starts with praising God. And notice what he says about God. He says, verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ. How's he blessed us? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Don't miss out on this. Imagine for a moment that you were invited to visit the King of England in Buckingham Palace. And as you arrived at Buckingham Palace, they opened wide the doors and they took you to your room and they said, you can sleep in this room. You can use whatever bed that you want. You can have whatever bedspread that you want. You can have as many pillows as you want. It is all yours for the nights. And then they took you over to the dining room. They said, whatever food that we can find in the United Kingdom is yours. What do you want? And then they said, what do you want to do today? All wealth is at your disposal. Whatever you want to do today will be yours. Many of us know that we will never get that opportunity, right? We are not worthy for that kind of of invitation. How much more unworthy are we for the invitation to receive heavenly blessings? The heavens where God is reigning and ruling. The heavens where his glory is on display. The heavens where the angels and cosmic beings are crying out, holy, holy, holy. The heavens where the God that created everything, created you and me, is reigning and residing in this moment. 
the heavenly places. And if you could imagine not just the heavenly places, but all of the spiritual blessings that reside in the heavenly places, what did Paul just say? They are given to who? They are given to those, look at verse 4, to those whom he chose in him. That phrase, in him, refers to Christ. How crazy is that? That if you believe in Jesus Christ, every spiritual blessing in this room, in my house, no, in the heavenly places, is at your disposal. What a grace it is. And it's not because you deserve this. Again, look at verse 4. It's because He chose those who believe. He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world. Some of you are older than me. I'm a jokester, but even I would not say that you're as old as the foundation of the world. Let alone before the foundation of the world. What a grace that He knew us and He decided to bestow grace upon us. But there's a purpose do not miss the purpose. So often we, we hear what God has done and we think all it does is just changes our eternal address. But there's a reality that it changes today. Because notice the purpose in verse 4. He says that we should be. The reason for this is that we should be holy and we should be blameless. This idea of holy is often lost on us because at best we think of holy as a negative term or we describe it in negative ways that it means separate from sin. That is true, but there's also a positive definition. We're not just separate from sin, but we are utterly and entirely devoted to God. Can you say that about your life? That you are devoted to God in every aspect of your life. That's the very reason that Jesus gives salvation so that we might be utterly devoted to God. And that when we see sin in, in our lives, we repent, we turn from that and we turn back to Jesus Christ but let me be clear that if we see sin and we do not turn from it, we have no reason to believe that we are actually one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Because those who understand the grace of God always are transformed by that grace of God. But then Paul continues in verse 5. He continues to describe this right before verse 5. He says, in love, he predestined. That's, again, that, that choosing. What did he do? Choose us for adoption. Now, I realize that there are a couple of ways adoption happens. 
But one of the ways adoption happens is that you say, I want to adopt, and they say, here's a kid, and you say, okay, I would like to adopt that kid. There's no catalog that you're thumbing through, no characteristics that you're writing down, nothing that you're returning when, when it breaks. There is just simply, I am choosing for all of the pros and all of the cons. I am choosing you to be part of my family. And Paul says that's exactly what happens to those who are in Christ. God has chosen, not because of your pros and not because of your cons, but because of him. He has adopted into his family. But how do you know if you've been adopted? Well, John tells us in John 1.12, he says, Yet to all who believe in him and receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. You can know that you're a child of God based on the fact that you have believed in Jesus, you have received Jesus, you have forsaken your sin and said, I want my life to be about Jesus. And you're a part of the family of God. And as you are adopted into this family, you're adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Not because of what you've done, but despite what you've done. So often we have this terminology called unconditional love. I hate it. I hate it. Unconditional love says that whatever I do, you're just going to take me as I am, and it does not matter. God doesn't have unconditional love. He has what the late counselor David Pallison said, contra-conditional love. He knows you. He knows your sin. He knows the horrific things that you and I have done. And despite that, contra that, he enters into our life. He rescues us. And contrary to our current nature, he comes and he brings us to a brand new nature. He doesn't say, it's okay, just stay where you're at. He says, I'm going to come despite you. And I'm going to bring and I'm going to change you to be my child. But how does he do this? Well, jump down to verse 7. Paul shows us. In him we have redemption. This idea of redemption is lost on us often. If you look at a can of soda, either on the top or on the side, you will see three letters. CRV, which means certified redemption value. And then you'll see all of these state abbreviations and either five cents or ten cents. And since that's not something that we do in this state, let me describe that. If you were to go to California, Hawaii, Connecticut, New York, one of those states, when you buy a can of soda, you pay an extra nickel or a dime for every can, and they hold your nickel or dime for ransom. So that when you're done with your can, you take it to a recycling center and with your can, you redeem your money away from them. In their mind, they're redeeming their can away from you. Paul says that by 
nature. We are children who follow the world and are children of God's wrath. And what ends up happening here is Jesus Christ, through his blood, he redeems. He buys us out of that wrath and he gives us new life. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wage of sin is death. If you've done just one sin, one thing apart from the Lord, it results in death. And so the only way out is for another who is perfect to die in our place, to redeem us and set us Free. And Paul says that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. He redeems us through his blood. And then he doesn't just redeem us and set us free from the power of sin. Notice what he does. He also forgives our trespasses. Anybody ever felt guilty before? Just riddled with guilt. The way through is the forgiveness that Jesus Christ gives. And notice he gives according to the riches of his grace. Chapter 2 will tell us that those riches are immeasurable. You can't even count. I'm not sure if you've ever gone to the ocean, ever go to the beach and, and start counting every grain of sand. If you do that, let me know, because I want to come and videotape that. Because that looks ridiculous. And yet Paul says, that's the reality of God's grace. It is so immeasurable. And it's given to you and I. And it's not given in a skimpy form. God is not some sort of cheapo. Because notice what he says in verse 8. He lavished upon us. He freely gave to us. In the Gospel of Matthew, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Let me just be honest. If you sin against me seven times and I forgive you each time, there's a little bit in me that's going to be like, I'm doing a good job. And Jesus says, no, 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 I don't say seven times. I say 77 times. An unlimited amount of grace that we are to give to one another because that reflects the unlimited amount of grace that God gives to all those who repent and turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. And he didn't do this in a clueless way because notice in verse 8, he did this in all wisdom and all insight. He knew exactly what he was doing when he was giving this kind of grace. So how do we get it? Look at verse 11. He says, in him, again, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. You get an inheritance when someone dies. Christ died. By faith in Christ, you get this inheritance. And now our rule simply is this in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Your role is to 
hear the reality that there is a God. To hear the reality that you have sinned against a mighty God, a holy God, and as a result, you ought to spend eternity away from this holy God, and that should terrify you. And yet, in the midst of that, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to give new life. He sent his son, Jesus, to die for that sin, to rise from the dead, conquering that sin, conquering death. And now by faith in Jesus, you too can have forgiveness. You too can have that inheritance for your life. But what does it mean for the rest of us? It means that you're no better than anybody else. It means that we can no longer act as if we are better than those around us because apart from the grace of God, we would just be like everybody else around us. And so this should be incredibly humbling for us. But why does God do all this work? Well, Paul shows us secondly, and that is the glory of election. Paul shows us three strategic points that all of this was done for God's glory. Look at verse 6. After talking about all of the blessings and the reality that we've been chosen and predestined, he says it is to the praise of his glorious grace. Like, why in the world is that the case? If you've ever watched the movie Miracle on Ice or heard the story of the 1980 U.S. men's hockey team who defeated in the Olympics Russia, the defending world champions, we love that kind of story because it is an underdog story, a team that had no hope, a team that had no ability, a team that should have lost early on and yet rose through the ranks and won Olympic gold. We love those kinds of stories, don't we? Most of you know I love sports. One of my teams had a strategy over the last couple of years. Spend all the money that we can to buy all the best players that we can. And guess what? They made it to the playoffs. And you know what some of you said? Well, of course they should make it to the playoffs with those players. But imagine a small team like the Oakland Athletics who none of us could name a single person on their team. And yet year after year after year, they somehow made it to the playoffs And everybody was amazed. Do you see how much more glory that gets? How much more honor that gets? It's as if that's what God is doing with us. I I get a picture at times as if God has this massive trophy room of which each trophy represents those whom he has drawn to himself and changed. And he's just walking around and saying, "Uh, do you notice this trophy? Do you see what I did there? Do you see their life before me and how I gave them faith and I gave them life and how I've changed them? Wow, this is awesome. If we're honest, don't shake your head too much. Don't say it out loud. But if you're honest and you look around, you'd be, I can't believe that God saved that person. 
Maybe we need to look in the mirror and say, I can't believe God saved that person. It's because of his glorious grace. It is all to elevate him. And Paul furthers this idea in verse 12. At the end of verse 11, we see that we've obtained this inheritance. And now verse 12, Paul says, So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And he uses this weird phrase, we who are first to hope in Christ. Well, if you read the book of Acts, you see who the first people are to hope in Christ. Who are they? They're the Jewish people. But if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are the people that got Jesus killed? The Jews. Very, very, very flabbergasting. Audacious what God has done to take the very people that, he reject, that, that rejected him to take them and to bring some of them to salvation so that he might get glory. In fact, the guy who was writing this was on his way to have Christians arrested and killed or imprisoned when God knocked him off a horse and showed himself to Paul and drew Paul in. And now Paul has written much of the New Testament. And we all sit in awe over the reality of what God has done. Have you ever seen a magnificent sight? I remember being five or six getting to go to the Hoover Dam, which is the dam that blocks the Colorado River between uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, and Arizona. And I remember standing there with my family, looking over the railing at this massive dam wall and just being in awe over the engineering marvel of what my eyes were beholding. And you get a sense that Paul says, we too should be in awe over the spiritual engineering marvel that God can take the worst of us and give us life with him forever. Are you in awe of God? Do you pause and just reflect on who he is? You know, Isaiah shows us in chapter 6, we read in Isaiah 6 that the prophet Isaiah gets this vision of God. And as he gets this vision, he sees God seated on the throne. He is high and he is lifted up. And the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. Women, I know some of you got married. Some of you had, tr you know, train on your gown. My guess is that none of your trains filled the church. But the train of God's robe fills the church with glory. And the seraphim were there and they were singing out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah writes that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke when Jesus just spoke, when the Father spoke that the whole house was filled with smoke. 
you ever pause and get that glimpse of the glory of God? Is that perhaps the reason why we continue to sin? Because we don't slow down enough to look at God for who He actually is. Because if we paused for a moment and actually saw God for who He actually is, we would see our sin and we would just weep at how despicable it really is. There's that hymn I've been quoting and misquoting all week. But it says something to this effect that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Have the things of earth grown dim to you? Because the Lord is utterly glorious. Paul shows us the final point in the final part in verse 14 that all of this inheritance is done to the praise of the glory of God. So, how do we grow in this? One of the ways that we grow in seeing the glory of God is that we just simply pause and spend time with God, reflecting on God. And then we talk about God with one another. I think one of the lies Satan is telling you and I is do not talk about God. Three things you don't bring up, religion, politics, and money. Because Satan knows if you talk about God, your heart will be stirred for God. And the more you talk about God, the more somebody else talks about God, the more excitement and joy you will actually have over the reality of God. And I just want you to encourage you to find somebody and talk about God together so you glory in his great name. But how do we do all of this? Well, Paul shows us lastly the ground of election. The ground of election. There are two words that are used ten times in this passage. In him, in Christ, in the beloved. That phrase is used ten times. Theologians call this union with Christ, that as Christ died, you died with him. That if Christ rose from the dead, as he rose from the dead, you too rose from the dead to new life, to power over sin and death. And Paul just keeps pounding this reality that the salvation from God is not about you, not from you, not from inside of you, but it is grounded entirely in Jesus Christ. Follow me as we quickly look at these. Verse 3, halfway through, God has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, He chose us in Him. Verse 6, He has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption. Verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, our hope is in Christ. Verse 
13, In Him you also heard the word of truth and believed in Him. And the culmination is actually in verse 10. As for the plan of fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Church, I don't know of any greater security than the reality that faith in Jesus Christ does not rest in what you have done or what you will do or what you think you might do, but it is rest, but it rests entirely in what Christ has already done. There is no greater security, no greater stability, no greater uh, safety net for you to rest and fall into than the reality that if we believe in Jesus Christ, that mirrors the fact that he has elected us and that mirrors the fact that we will persevere to the end and that we will spend eternity with God. And there's nothing in this world that can ever stop that. Do you know that truth to be true for you? It's not in Derek. It's not in your spouse. It's not in your kids. It is in Christ. And there's nothing that will ever defeat Christ because he has defeated death and he will return and he will defeat all of the satanic forces and he will bind them and send them to hell for all of eternity. There's nothing that can stop those who believe in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Because there are some implications for us if that's true. There are seven implications. The first is if you don't believe that, I want to invite you to believe that today. You're saying, I, I don't get this election thing. I don't, hey, who cares? If you come to faith in Jesus, admit your sin and confess that and go to Jesus, guess what? Now we know that you must have been elected. Before that, we don't know. So just come. With all that you've got, just come. Secondly, center your life around Christ. All of your activity, everything you think, everything you say, everything you do, from your family to your job to your money to your free time, center everything around Jesus Christ. Three, Humble yourself. It's not what we've done. It is what God has done. We have no ability to go through life on our own or to be holy on our own. And so we just need to humble ourselves before God and say, please help. Empower me today. Fourth, pursue holiness. Pursue a life that is utterly devoted to God. We live in a world that is changing, and the best way to tell the world that there is hope in Jesus Christ is to have a life that actually believes that there is hope in Jesus Christ. To have a life that actually proclaims, yes, my hope is in Jesus, and I think that that hope is better, and so I'm going to forsake all my sin and pursue Jesus. Fifth, tell others about Jesus. Do you know how we can know if somebody is part of the elect family of God? 
we go and tell people about the gospel, they respond to Christ by believing and trusting and forsaking sin. And then we say, I guess they were one of the elect. I I heard an illustration that it's as if there is treasure in, in the locker, like if you've been to a train station or, or an airport, they have all these lockers, even Knobles, they have all these lockers, and you can put some money in, put your stuff in, and get the key and come out. It's as if you have a key. The key is the gospel. We don't know who will believe. We don't know who will be changed. But we have a key, and we have a wall full of lockers, and it's our joy to engage each locker and see which one will open and come to believe in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, that is a glorious reality because I've seen some of you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I praise the Lord for that. He's inviting you into that. Six, sleep. Go to sleep tonight. God is in control. You are not. You can lay your head down and just rest. I don't know what you're dealing with. Maybe this week was incredibly difficult. Maybe you received news that you did not want to receive. Maybe it feels as if as you look through your eyes, everything around you is just gray and dark. But the reality of what God can do and what God has already done allows us to put our head on the pillow and just sleep. Seventh, talk to one another about Jesus. Talk talk with each other. Talk about Jesus. Let me ask you, or, or let me tell you, if you ask me about my Los Angeles Dodgers, you will, and just observe me, you will notice that my speech gets faster, it gets higher, that a smile comes across my face, and I get more animated because I'm excited to talk about something so dear to me. If we see Jesus Christ like that, and we begin to talk to one another about him like that, our hearts are stirred to know and love him. So if we were to look at the steps of your life, what would we find? Would we find sinking, eroding soil? Or would we find a sturdy, secure and stable foundation for which to live for Christ upon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth, the reality that salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. There's nothing that we can do, and yet so often we try to work for it, So often we walk around like we have it all together. So often we act as if we are better. And I pray that you would humble us, help us. For those who do not have faith in you, may you open their eyes, open their ears, that they might believe and know the truth of Christ. For those of us who do do believe, I pray that you would encourage us that, that your way and your power is enough for us to build our life upon. Father, I pray 
In your son's precious name, amen.